section of Torah is a place where definite boundaries are set on how we treat our neighbors. Um, There's a dividing line why we started in verse 11 because verses 1 through 11 are actually how you treat uh, the alien in your midst, those people uh, from other places, those visiting. Um, and by the way, almost no boundaries there. I've got my favorite, favorite passage in the verse before it, uh, if I can already take a, a little rabbit trail. But uh, you weren't allowed to harvest the outside of your field because that was left for the wanderer, that was left for the traveler. And I love, I love that. And how you weren't allowed to um, beat your olive uh, trees twice. Um, whatever stayed up there stayed and they were there for the wanderer. But in verse 11, it transitions from the wanderer or the alien in your midst to your neighbor. And if you, if you didn't notice, there are two boundaries at least that comes with how we treat each other, how we treat neighbors. And I have to say, remember when this was written, this was written Uh, when Israel was living together all out into the wilderness, beginning their journey or making their journey to to home. So in their context, neighbor also meant believer. So I always take these when it talks about our neighbor and I uh, uh, juxtapose it, if you will, and I make it speak to us. It's how we treat each other. It's how we treat other believers within the church. This is how we we treat each other. And the one boundary is this, and I'm happy that uh, Grady did actually read it from the King James Version, because if you have a modern version, it says this, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. The King James Version says, don't go about as a tale bearer. And by the way, it isn't necessarily slanderous. What it's actually saying is you don't go around talking about other people, period. The Bible, I have to tell you, pretty much defines gossip as simply talking about someone else to someone else, no matter. So one boundary in which we treat our neighbors or we treat each other, we don't what? We don't gossip, okay? We don't gossip. Maybe the world's way, but we don't gossip. I did uh, an entire series on this when, uh, when we went through the golden rule before. We did an entire series on, on, on gossip. We don't have time for that today. But one boundary is that we don't gossip. So that's where we start. We start with how we talk about each other, how we, and the, the, the boundary is we don't. We're not supposed to. We're not supposed to be talking to someone else about someone else. By the way, there's the one talking and there's the one listening. People would quit gossiping if we would quit listening. Okay? If, if, if I were to say, hold on a second, hold on a second, I am not going to partake in your gossip about someone else. If enough people did that, we'd quit gossiping. We only gossip because we have what? We have an audience. That's right. So we start here. We don't gossip about each other. Where's next? You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So the other boundary is don't talk about, 
don't gossip about. The other is don't carry a grudge. And you may not realize it, but where I'm headed today is you don't talk about someone. The only way that you can not carry a grudge and work it out means you talk to somebody. We don't talk about them. We're supposed to talk to them. That's how we live within these boundaries. No vengeance, not even a grudge. Ellen White puts both of these together in a brilliant article that she published in the Review and Herald in, when was it? Uh, October 24th, 1893. It's a bit long, but listen to this. I'm filled with sorrow as I see finite men who claim to be the sons of God, filled with evil surmising and ready to speak evil of their brethren in the truth ready to weigh others in their own scales of human opinion, place their estimate upon those of whom they really understand but little. The worst of it is that often those who ought to understand why such action is out of place drink in the spirit of the accuser, go to the polluted fountain of suspicion and distrust and turning from the course justice marks out are guided by someone's hearsay of another's action or character. Pretty blistering rebuke of what? Of gossip. By the way, it isn't necessarily slander. She said they're actually coming in the truth. A lot of us think that it's okay to gossip gossip as long as it's true. No, not according to her. She says, by this course, God's Holy Spirit is grieved and the churches are weakened by the influence of distrust and suspicion for they are led to speak evil of those who stand far better in the sight of God than do their accusers. Are we to take reports, hearsay, as if they were verity and truth? Are we not to rebuke the talebearer who would make a condemned brother's course appear as bad as possible? It isn't so much that we're gossiping, it's just that we have a tendency that when we are gossiping, we may stretch the badness of it in order to make ourselves look a little better. It's impossible to keep from doing it. The true brethren of Christ are those who guard the interests of their brethren and sisters. How inappropriate it is to condemn others when every soul is to be saved, not on its own merits, but by the merits of a crucified and risen Savior. We are all erring, finite creatures, accountable to God for our words. We've been on the inside on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember we spent all those months in the parables, in the outside, listening to him with our outside ears, him speaking in his outdoor voice. And for the past few weeks, I thought, let's spend a little time on the inside, how he speaks to us, how he speaks to people who claim to be his disciples. And we left off in chapter seven on the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember. Left off saying this, do not what? Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. We cannot judge. Why is it we cannot judge? Because our motives aren't pure. We're fallen ourselves. 
And whenever we judge, we judge by selfish motives, which also means that we come up with selfish judgment. That's why he says, whatever standard you're using to judge them by, I'm going to judge you by. And if we're at all honest with ourselves, that's the last thing we want. So I learned, we learned the week after that, after introducing this, what is judging? Judging is not just looking at the fruits or the non-fruits of somebody. It's also questioning their motive for doing so. They could be doing good things. We looked at fasting, praying, giving. They could be doing good things. The judge is the one who questions their motive for doing so. Well, they're doing it just to get right with God. Does Job serve God for nothing? In order to judge, I have to question somebody's motive. And if I'm questioning somebody's motive for good or for bad, then I'm judging them. It goes even further in this chapter that it's ridiculous to even try. He said, because when you try, you're like an ophthalmologist who comes at you with a microscope and tweezers but keeps bumping his two-by-four sticking out of his eye into your forehead. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? He's commenting on our habit of judging, don't we? We judge harsher than we would upon ourselves. And we ignore a log, a two-by-four, in order to get to a speck. You hypocrite. Greek word, actor. Hypocrite is one who wore masks. You know the international sign of the Thespian Society is the sad mask and the happy mask? Back in the first century, they literally wore those masks so that you would know, as the audience, what kind of emotion he was feeling. But he's only wearing a mask. You mask wearer, you hypocrite. You pretend that they're your neighbor, but your judgment upon them is as Mrs. White said, you're chewing them, eating them up. How you're treating them does not go along with the mask that you're wearing. You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly, maybe, to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Take out the log. In other words, purify your own motive. And remember, remember our motive for worshiping God. The only way to make it pure is to know that I'm not doing it to show off in front of someone else, to appear pious to somebody. You don't do it for that reason. That's not a pure motive to worship God. Publicly, especially in things that can be done in public. Fasting, praying, Giving. And then also you don't do it to find favor with God. Why? Because God has already found favor with you. He's already found you in his favor. There's nothing you can do, nothing you can do to make God not love you. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. So when it comes to you and me then, if my motive can be pure with God, then it needs to be pure with you, right? And that's the hardest part, is to be able to purify my own motive that I may have for talking to you about something. 
we realize that we're all in the same boat. We all have these fallen natures. We all have logs sticking out of our own eye. So we looked at that, judging even, questioning someone else's motive. Then we took a little bit of a detour. Who is the one who is allowed to judge? If we're not allowed to judge, then who judges? Only God, okay? Only God. The one who knows our motives and because he created us and forgave us and reconciled us and died for us, he's the only one that's allowed to judge. If you love somebody enough to die for them, then maybe, just maybe, you might be allowed to judge them. But he didn't do it just for his neighbor. He did it for his enemy. And hence, that separates the men from the boys right there, right? Paul says someone may die for a good person. Romans, we're getting to it in prayer meeting. Someone might actually die for a good person. But for a bad person, nobody's going to do that. Yet while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So it brings us to here. The ultimate uh, statement then for the disciples when we get to, and this is why I wanted to conclude here. In everything, how much? Everything. Do to others as you would what? As you would have them do to you. For this is the law and what? This is everything. This is everything you know and has been revealed about God through all of Scripture and the law. This is everything that you treat others as you would have yourself treated. There was a rabbi that was actually a contemporary of Jesus. He might have been probably a little older. Uh, he probably was in his 70s at the time that Jesus walked the earth. His name was Hillel. And some smart aleck student from the other school, the rival school, the school of Shammai, walked up to Hillel one day and said, recite the entire law and the prophets while standing on one foot. And supposedly, Hillel took one foot up and says, don't do things that you don't want done to you, and then put his foot down. It's the golden rule, isn't it? That's why I'm saying is the golden rule is not original. Jesus made it revolutionary, but it is not original. It's been around ever since Moses wrote down Leviticus. Because if you think about it, isn't it a more elegant way of saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself? I am the Lord. This is not new. It's been around since the Torah. In everything do unto others as you would have them done to you. For this is all. It's all. It's who we are. So what lies in between? Okay? Only white to not gossip. Only if I'm not to gossip about somebody and if I'm not to bear a grudge with somebody, then something has to lie in between in order for me to get to that part where I am loving my neighbor as myself. And what is it that lies in between? You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall what? You shall reprove, reprove your neighbor or you will incur guilt yourself. So there comes a point in time, brothers and sisters, when we must what? When we must reprove each other. There comes a point in time when we have to do this. Otherwise, if we don't, I'll either just continue walking around gossiping about you or I will continue to have a grudge against you. 
There's something that has to be done if we're going to be the neighbor that is described here, if we're going to live inside with each other. By the way, it's not something that the world offers anybody. The world is full of nothing but grudges and gossip and hatred and vengeance. The church is supposed to offer something better. So there will come a time when we actually have to what? Oh my goodness, we actually have to talk to each other. Not just about, and not just because, but actually have to talk to each other. The golden rule convicts us. There has to be a bridge between the two. The only way to be in between the two is to learn how to reprove each other and learn how to accept what? The same reproof. There'll be times when we need to reprove and there'll be times when we need to accept it. You have to do both. We have to do both in order to be good neighbors. We have to do both in order to be able to live on the inside with Jesus. Second Samuel eleven twenty six. The wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead. She made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son. But the thing David had done did what? Displeased the Lord. The deeds are done. A stolen, raped wife, a murdered husband to cover it up. The king, safe in his self-righteous power, is attempting to what? He's attempting to move on. Do you ever notice that? That's exactly what he's doing. Everything that he's done, and he is just what now? Moving on. Which means, does he feel justified in what he's done? Of course he does. Feels absolutely justified in what he's done. He has completely justified it in his head. The problem is, is that it displeased the Lord. And somebody needs to tell him. How many here want that job? How many here want to go tell the king of all Israel that God is displeased with him? How many want that job? He just proved what happens when somebody displeases him, right? And that job fell on who? It fell on Nathan, the prophet. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin in his book, Words That Hurt and Words That Heal, says that Nathan is going to be the example of everybody who's ever been called to have to reprove somebody. If you want to know how it's done, this is how we do it. So Nathan begins with what? Is this necessarily a true story? No, he begins with a parable. And isn't that so cool? Remember what parables did for those on the outside. It helped them to what? It helped them to understand God's voice. Nathan is treating David like one on the outside. He begins with a parable. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other what? And the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. How does that immediately appeal to David? They're both what? They're both shepherds. So the parable immediately rings or resonates with David. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. Was there ever a point in time in David in Jesse's field held one little ewe lamb? 
He's done it a thousand times. And this guy had to buy it. It's his. He had to buy it, and it's all he has. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a what? It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. It's a pretty stark parable, isn't it? It's clear what happened. It's absolutely clear what happened. We have a clear uh, villain, and we have a clear hero so far, don't we? Extremely clear. In fact, it does what it's supposed to do. David gets angry, greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to what? Deserves to die. He'll restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And all Nathan says is four words. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. And he went on to say, you know, if that wasn't enough, I would have given you whatever you asked for. Real quick, I have a, in, in, we talked about it in prayer meeting and last uh, three years ago when we went through First and Second Samuel, David was picked, I believe, he was picked to be king because he was a shepherd. It was a shepherd that was supposed to lead Israel. Moses was picked because he was a shepherd. When they say that, that David was a man after God's own heart, he was a man after God's own heart as long as he ruled Israel the way he ruled his sheep as a shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. David was that shepherd. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart. I know people, especially men, who think that it's David's ability as a warrior and all the blood that he was able to shed and killing Goliath and all of that. Maybe even this, maybe even this episode makes him a man after God's own heart. No. When David ruled like a shepherd, he was a man after God's own heart. Nathan, not by accident, uses a shepherd's analogy here. Bathsheba was your lamb. What do you think you're doing? He's only doing what kings do. This is exactly what kings do. In order to prove that they have the power, in order to prove that they deserve to be king, they take what they want when they want it how they stay on the throne. And that's how David has been sitting in this throne room forever now, even though Bathsheba is over there pregnant. And he knows exactly he has sat on his throne absolutely justified in what he's done. Why? Because of the job, because of the burden of being king. What if Nathan would have just walked in and said, you know what, man? You really blew it. And God is really upset with you right now. What do you think David would have done? I can hear it now. You know what, Nathan, you're right. I would have just come out and confessed. And I thought about it, 
But if Uriah comes back and finds her pregnant, he may have harmed her. I needed to protect her. If Uriah found out I did this, he might have rebelled and got the army to rebel. Then all Israel would be in chaos. I had to do it for the good of the nation. You go on the offense when you reprove somebody, you are going to provoke a what? A defensive reaction. And by the way, in an argument, once somebody becomes defensive, is there any use of going on anymore? He blame, he'll blame Bathsheba. Men that have preached about this, they all blame Bathsheba. She shouldn't have been bathing in David's sight. Blame Uriah if he'd have just done what he said like a good soldier, what I told him to do. Blame the pressures of the job. Defensiveness leads to justification after the anger. By the way, he would get defensive and then he would have Nathan executed. For the country's survival, Nathan, for Bathsheba's safety, it was my duty to kill Uriah. See, Nathan enables David to see the issue's moral simplicity without clouding or being clouded by his own justification or the denial of his sins. David pronounced his own verdict. That man deserves to what? That man deserves to die. When Nathan informs him it was him, David's got no choice but to acknowledge that he deserves the same. David understands it clearly, and he states it. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not what? You shall not die. Why? Why was Nathan able to pronounce that just because David said, I'm sorry, I've sinned. I, you know, I did it. You're right. I deserve to die. I, and and, and because he just confessed. And if you confess, he who is faithful and true will what? Will forgive you. God just proved it, didn't he? The voice of God comes immediately back to him and says, you won't die. The Lord has put away your sin. Maybe David's life and maybe his salvation is restored because Nathan knows how to offer a rebuke. Nathan knew how to speak to him. And simply knowing how to offer the rebuke, simply knowing David the way that he did, he was able to get him to confess and to repent. Notice he confessed and then he repented. A little later, he writes down a little psalm called Psalm 51. He even tells everybody, this is what happened to me after I confessed to Nathan. To the leader, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. If Nathan would have blown this rebuke, we wouldn't have this psalm, and David might be lost eternally. Maybe. You with me? You not hate anyone in your heart of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor or you will incur guilt yourself. Why? It's required by God that we reprove each other. It's required by God that we offer 
criticism and have to confront sometimes. But it's always carried out through the lens of the greatest commandment and the golden rule. We always have to be looking at people through this lens. By the way, until we can, we can keep our rebukes to ourselves. Until you can look at somebody and say, I'm going to treat them exactly as I would like to be treated. I'm going to love them as myself. Until you can do that, keep your rebuke to yourself. And we're this way, why? Why is a follower of Jesus this way? Why is a follower of Jesus willing to accept rebuke and willing to give rebuke when it's warranted? It's because it's exactly the way he is. It's exactly the way he treats Laodicea. Laodicea has locked him out. We have locked him out. We are rich and have need of nothing. We have locked him out and we still claim to be a church of Christ but we've locked him out. He's on the outside of the door and he is willing to reprove and discipline because he what? Because he loves us. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Turn, he says. We are this way with each other because this is how he is with us. The Lord ever rebuke you? He rebukes me all the time. And I know, I know what you're saying. If I messed up as many times as you, of course. But when he does, he does. And when he does, it's because why? It's because he loves us. And he might be keeping us from getting hurt. And he might be keeping someone else from getting hurt. We're this way because he is. Love requires it. The JPS, the Jewish uh, Publication Society's translation, uh, says it almost literally. You shall not hate your kinsfolk in your heart, reprove your kinsmen, but incur no guilt because of him. Two ways to interpret incur no guilt because of him. If you don't reprove something when something serious is going on, someone could get hurt. By the way, I need to stress this. I need to stress this. There are serious situations where you don't wait, okay? Where you don't wait until you fall in love with someone. Someone needs rebuke if there's something else going on where someone else could get hurt. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the everyday life of the church. I'm talking about the everyday grudges and and, and care that you and I have, the everyday disagreements. I'm not talking about emergencies. You with me? If you know a child's getting hurt, or you know a spouse is getting hurt, or a senior is getting hurt, you know any of those things, okay, you tell somebody. This is everyday life of the church. So, you on board with me? I don't want, uh, there isn't anybody who claims to be a follower of Christ and love their neighbor as themselves who's going to stand by and, and just wait back Okay, because they don't love somebody enough to be able to rebuke them about the abuse they may be putting upon their child, their wife, their spouse, their, their senior they're caring for. If somebody's getting hurt, you do something. You with me? Okay, this is just us. This is you and I disagreeing. This is you and I misunderstanding. This is you and I uh, talking, gossiping, holding grudges. This is the everyday life. 
So two ways to interpret, incur no guilt because of him. One is, if you don't reprove when something is going on, someone could get hurt. It might be that person. Even if you don't succeed in changing the behavior pattern, an innocent person might be spared harm because of a confrontation. By the way, here's another reason why we're not to judge. See, because what I do, what what you and I normally do, is that when we rebuke somebody, when we go to judge somebody, we have it in our mind that we are going to change their mind. We're going to change them, that that's our goal. And we don't see it as successful until we've changed them, until we get them to see what we want them to see, until they take our side and our opinion. That's a selfish motive for going to somebody. We talk, we discuss. You shall not hate your kinsfolk in your heart. That's a grudge that's being held. Communication isn't happening. And if somebody has an opposite view of me and that's my grudge and I go to talk to them, but I think that uh, converting them to my side is the only way to do this, then I better not be rebuking because that doesn't win anybody, does it? What we're supposed to be doing is to find a place. I might not change their mind at all, but I might change the dangerous behavior, and I've also changed the course of the conversation. Now it's not just a grudge. Now Sam and I know each other a little better. And maybe I can get to the point where I even can tolerate his side of it. And it isn't rebuke anymore. Then it's just friendly. It's just you and I getting to know each other. Doesn't that sound like what should be happening in the church? That definitely is not happening out there on social media, anywhere. If I'm doing it in order to convert you to my side, that's a selfish motive for doing this. But incur no guilt. Things have to be said. Somebody could get hurt. Less serious circumstances is what I'm talking about. Dr. Rabbi Telushkin used an example. He says, you notice an occasional verbal attack from a friend on their wife or their child? You probably need to say something. Speaking up, I recognize, is uncomfortable, but remaining silent could be grossly irresponsible if it gets serious. So that's one interpretation. The other interpretation is you're permitted, even obligated, to rebuke, okay? If we're followers of Jesus and Jesus reproves and disciplines those who he loves, then we may be obligated to do it. But if you do it in a demeaning or humiliating way, it's a sin. That's what this means, could mean. Incur no guilt because of him. You've decided and you've been convicted that you need to go and to talk to them, but you do it in a demeaning or a humiliating or confrontational way and you now incur guilt. You now have sinned because you're not treating them then as you want to be treated. There isn't anybody who wants to be approached that way. We're obligated to find the way that inflicts the minimum amount of hurt because if we can inflict the minimum amount of hurt, then we can achieve the maximum amount of good. It just might be up to the person reproving, not the one being reproved. 
you hypocrite. Take the log out of what? Take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly, it says. Consider our own hypocrisy to keep from incurring harm. Let me tell you a story real quick. I began studying with a couple who gave me a call at my office one day. They said, uh, we didn't know that there was a Seventh-day Adventist church in this area. You know, we've, we've had some exposure. We'd like to study with you. So I said, great. So I drove out to their place. It was a very rural place, very rural church where we were. And uh, I go into the woods and I find their place. It's, it's just one of those places where, you know, you can see the smoke from another person's uh, fire. That's about it. That's how close you are as a neighbor. It's very isolated. Okay. And I studied with them. And they seemed to be really eating it up. They attended one Sabbath. They came after, after they called and, and they met me. And they said, uh, you know, they just, it was one of those couples that as a pastor, you go, all right, you know, things are rolling. They, they love everything that we're doing. Oh, good, I can't wait. And then this one particular lesson came up. Our lesson about the temperance from alcohol as total abstinence. Now, before I go on, I still believe this, okay? I believe that abstinence from alcohol is the best way. I also understand that I'm talking about it from my standpoint. My parents were alcoholics. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I think it's best to stay away, okay? But I also understand that that's not everybody's experience. And I taught them abstinence. I taught them that. They told me they consumed no more than, say, a glass of wine or two per week, occasionally with their evening meal. No more, ever. Now, should I believe them? Sure, I should. They haven't shown me any different. Okay? I didn't walk in and kick five empty wine bottles out of the way so I could sit down. So they cited to me the studies about wine and cardiovascular health. It's good for us, okay? And I said, well, yeah. But also, you know, that those, uh, what are they called? The phytogens? What are those gens called <laughs> that's in red wine? It's in the skins of the grape, okay? You can get the same thing if you drink grape juice. Drink Welch, oh, well, no, Welch has added sugar. So, but, but you still get the, the, the cardiovascular effect. By the way, it doesn't happen with white wine. So if somebody's drinking white wine telling you they're doing it for cardiovascular health, it doesn't work with, with uh, green grapes. Only hurts with wet, red grapes, okay? They told me that, and I told them that. We just went back and forth, back and forth. Something else was bothering them. I knew it. I could sense it. There was something else going on here. I suggested that we just move on. I said, let's, let's move on and we'll come back to this. Something else was bothering them. Finally, after a couple of weeks, when it came up again, I said, look, I, I, I sense that I'm not hearing the whole story. Can you tell me, can you tell me what's going on? Well, here's what happened. Here's how they became acquainted with the church in the first place, is that they got a flyer in the mail for a revelation seminar. And the Revelation Seminar said, come learn about the law. Well, John was a, 
uh, an amateur lawyer. He loved the law. He was memorizing the the entire California Revised Code. He had it at his house. He loved reading about it. He loved studying it. He said, said, I'm able to do everything but do it by the numbers. I never wanted to be a lawyer, but I love the law. He thought he was going to a law seminar. Now, the place, the church that was putting it on was actually an hour away, 65 miles away, but one of the towns was a little closer, and the town was in the district of that church. So they went ahead, and they were driving 60 miles, where our church was only 15 miles away, but they didn't know we were there. So they were going to church when they started attending the seminar, they were driving all the way down there and they went to church for a month down there. And they were going along in the studies and, and they were unfortunately honest enough in a Sabbath school class to say something about their very moderate, temperate wine habit. The following Sabbath when they came to church, some saint walked up to them with a pamphlet and in front of the entire congregation says, I understand you guys got a drinking problem and shoved this in their face. Pamphlet never made it home, by the way. That's what they told me. They were confused and they were hurt. How many here think they had a right to be? They backed off for a bit, and then for some reason somebody said something from that church when they quit coming. I know him too, the head elder. He called him, and they told him what had happened. And he said, you know what? He said, there is a church that's a little closer. Maybe you can start over. And that's when they called me. It still hurt, but not being able to talk to somebody about something like that, not being able to approach them, to only approach them with self-righteousness and thinking that if it's true, I can treat you however the heck I want to, as long as it's true. Truth is what it needs. Was it honest? Yes. Was it sincere? Yes. Was it Christian? Absolutely not. See, being honest and sincere as possible, we can still be needlessly cruel. It's our responsibility to know the difference. It's our responsibility to know how to confront. By the way, (laughs) if you want to talk about karma or you want to talk about chickens coming home to roost, when I came back from seminary, I went to that church. I'm now pastoring that church. And I wasn't there maybe two weeks until I could tell you exactly which one of them approached them that way. I could pick them out immediately. By the way, I baptized John and Lacey. As far as I know, they're living in Oregon and they're still in the church. So before we take on reproof with each other, let's take a look at some scripture real quick. A lot of reading to do, okay? Do you mind? Look at some scripture that we can put together about this. And it's telling as to how to be able to do this. Job, 
who has friends who's coming to him who actually firmly believe that the reason he's in the way he's in, they firmly, sincerely believe that it's for, for some sin that he's committed. And, and, and Job keeps telling them, you know, I don't, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I really don't, you know. And, and some of the things you're saying sounds true, but he's, he's miffed at their, what they're saying, but he's also miffed at the way they're saying it. He says, those who withhold kindness from a friend forsake the fear of the Almighty. You guys say that you're bringing me rebuke from God, but there's something about you withholding your kindness that doesn't ring of God right now. My companions are treacherous, like a torrent bed, like freshets that pass away. You know what he's saying? How long would we survive without water on this planet? We've been told that if you're out in the desert or somewhere, you could survive, you know, maybe up to 30 days without food. But how long could you go without water? Okay. But what good is a flash flood? Flash flood does what? Nothing. It's absolute destruction. Water is the gift of life. It is very life. But when it's a flash flood, it is absolute destruction. It's a torrent bed. It's like freshets that pass away. And he's actually talking about snow that melts and, and floods and then goes away and leaves nothing but destruction in its path. That's a flash flood, isn't it? Teach me and I'll be silent. Make me understand how I've gone wrong. How forceful are honest words. But your reproof, what does it prove? He said, you're doing it without kindness. You're not even my friends anymore. And then a little later, he says, you know, it's, it's 16. It's chapter 16. It means it's 10 chapters later. In 10 chapters, the three friends have had two more shots at him. Okay, because they've all gone through it again. They've had two more shots at them. And 16, he finally says, you know what? I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. You guys said that you came here to give me comfort. You stink at this. Have windy words no limit? What provokes you that you keep on talking? I could do as you do. I could talk as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you. I could shake my head at you. But I also could what? I could encourage you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. Whose fault is it, is he saying? It's yours. I'm the one here suffering, un un unimaginable suffering, and I have to teach you how to give comfort to me. If the reprover's responsibility to bring understanding, they may not even understand what's wrong. Chances are, if they're needed to be reproved for some behavior or how they're treating someone else, they may have no idea that what they're doing is wrong. It's up to us. It's also the other reason for doing it. And we need to know the difference in how to do it. Jesus said it. He says this. He goes, if you put a stumbling block before any one of my kids, any one of my lambs who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. We're to confront. We're not to be a what? We're not to be a stumbling block. Our problem is, is that confronting can be a stumbling block. 
and have nothing to do with what's being rebuked about. It could be truer and righter than rain. But it's us. It's our attitude. It's how we feel about them. It's our impure motive. It's our ulterior motive, the way that we come to them. It's the reprover's responsibility to know the difference between being a reprover and a stumbling block. So how can we avoid it? Real quick, let's go through. First, check your motive. Why are you doing it? Okay, why are you doing it? Ancient Jewish text says this, love accompanied, unaccompanied by criticism is not love. We have to love if we're going to criticize. We have to criticize if we're going to love. But criticism of someone you love should hurt you. Right? It should hurt us. My dad never said to me, this is going to hurt me more and it's going to hurt you because he knew it wasn't true. But that's supposed to be the idea behind that sentiment, right? And they rec- recognize it back. Rabbi Telushkin, in quoting that text, also says this, before you criticize anyone, think about the advice commonly offered to medical students. Your obligation first is to do no harm. Unless you're confident that both the content and tone of your words will help the listener to overcome a designated flaw rather than demoralize him or her, keep silent. Mammonides, one of the greatest Jewish minds ever to live, writes in the 12th century, he who rebukes another, whether for offenses against the rebuker himself or for sins against God, should administer the rebuke in private. Speak to the offender gently and tenderly and point out that he is only speaking for the wrongdoer's own good. The only way you can make sure that your motive is pure is that you need to be alone with them. With me? Alone. That purifies motive. Our problem is most people go to reprove somebody after they've already told 10 other people. And by the way, when somebody comes to me and I know that you've already talked to somebody else about this, you might as well shut up because I'm already now on the defensive. Because now it's not just you who has something against me. Now it's 10 other people. And we may not realize it, but when we have told someone else, we come to that person and we are actually saying, you know what, I don't think my rebuke was gonna be strong enough, but I've got about five people on my side. So we're gonna make you. And believe me, I've been on that end of that conversation plenty. Jesus said it. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are what? Alone. If the member listens to you, you've regained. The only way to at least give it a chance is that you've got to go to them first. Two of you alone is what purifies motive. Why even tell anybody else? Ask us this. Why even talk to somebody else about it? You know why? Because we love to gossip. You know, somewhere, somewhere you know, in, this, in this fallen nature, I understand that, that completely uh, I'm going to listen anytime to the wrong voice to say that I'm not enough. I, at any given day, I can be not enough for somebody, for something, for God. 
But when we talk about something, somebody else who's struggling, then we feel like we're enough. We make ourselves feel like we're enough. We stand on the backs of people who are hurting just to feel better about ourselves. My least favorite group of people in the church are the some people who are saying. I get that complaint all the time. Greg, I need to talk to you. We're alone, though. I need to talk to you. But the first thing out of their mouth is, I hate to say this to you, but some people are saying. So I'll tell you, the number one group of people, and, I, and I, I, you may think that I'm whining, okay? All right, I'm allowed to whine if I want to. But the number one group of people who do not get the benefit of this in the church are pastors. Because we think nothing of talking about our leaders like that. We think that some reason, if they're leaders, then we don't need to treat them this way. So we'll talk to five, six, seven other people. We gotta make sure that it really is a problem before I go to them. You know what I've done? What I've done is, is I just go, you know what, you come to me and you say, some people are saying, there's a lot of people that are saying, a whole bunch of people are upset at this. And usually what it, about midway, I'll hear what it is and go, well, I'm real sorry that you feel that way. No, it's not me. It's some people. I said, well, where are they? I've, get, I've got criticized a lot. I've got criticized absolutely a lot when somebody has come to me for somebody else and I say, why aren't they talking to me? I had an elder who used to come to me all the time with someone else's complaint. Finally, I just said, why aren't they talking? And he said, you know, I asked them that, and they said, I'm not talking to him. So finally, I had to turn my attention to the one who was talking to me, who actually was talking to me, and I said, what did you tell them? I said, uh, you know, when I said that, I'm sorry you feel that way. Well, it's not me that feels that way, it's her. And I said, well, you're the one here talking to me about it. You must feel that way too. But I don't. I said, did you tell her that? Because if you tell me something to go complain about someone else, and I say, okay, I'll go do that. What did I just tell you? I just told you that I agree with you. Yeah, I'll quit whining. But some people are saying has done more damage to more leaders than just about anything that I know. It's cowardly, by the way. It's absolutely cowardly. That you feel that, that uh, I'm not worthy enough to just bring me your concern. You need to tell five, six, seven other people before I'll listen to you. Has the opposite effect on me. I gave up the right when you're a pastor, you do give up the right of a lot of things that other people are entitled to. I didn't give up the right to be treated like a Christian. No leader does. No one does. So we go to them when the two are what? Alone. See, my motive may be just to look good for others. That I need a coalition to come to you. If I disagree with your assessment, I got a whole bunch of people who agree with me. So now I, 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 my, my argument isn't worth merit. You're not worth me treating you like a Christian and my argument doesn't have enough merit. I'm gonna bring a bunch of other people's merit. Anonymously, by the way. It's cowardly. Some people are saying. Okay, that's first. Check your motive. 
Second, does my criticism offer specific ways to change? As I pointed out before, some people, when you assume that when you're living your life in conflict, it's just supposed to be that way. Some other people don't even see it. Our rebuke may be opening their eyes to a behavior they're not even aware of. Maybe, just maybe. Paul urges Timothy, he puts both of them together, first and second. He says, proclaim the message. Be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. He likens being able to rebuke with preaching the gospel. It's part of it. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, kindly to everyone, an apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. God may be perhaps grant them that they will repent and come to know the truth. God may perhaps. Could it rely on our gentleness? I say it does rely on our gentleness. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 128. Not until you feel you could sacrifice your own self-dignity, lay down your life in order to save an erring brother, have you cast the beam out of your own eye so that you're prepared to help your brother? Then you can approach him and touch his heart. Listen to this. No one has ever been reclaimed from a wrong position by censure and reproach. How many people? No one, but many have thus been driven from Christ and led to seal their hearts against conviction. A tender spirit, a gentle winning deportment may save the erring and hide a multitude of sins. She'll go on to say in another book, the absolute best testimony for a Christian, uh, for Christ, the best testimony for Christ is a gentle loving Christian, period. Check your motive, okay? Check your motive. Uh, What was was second, what did I say? Does my criticism offer specific ways? And finally this, are my words, what? Reassuring. Rabbi Telushkin concludes, it's told the 19th century Jewish moralist Rabbi Israel Salanter that when he offered criticisms, he would announce, don't think that I'm innocent of all the offenses I'm enumerating. I've committed some of them myself. All that I'm doing, therefore, is speaking aloud to myself. If anything you might overhear applies to you, well, that is all well and good. Does it ever work to try to rebuke anybody from a position of moral superiority? No. First Timothy says, the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul never, ever approached anybody without letting you know that he believed he was a bigger sinner than you. How many of you ever have thought of doing that when you have to bring reproach to somebody? You know what? I'm a bigger sinner than you. Jesus even says, why do you call me what? Why do you call me good? If there's anybody that could take on the title of good and have people call him good, it's him. But he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but who? But God alone. 
We, every communion, we're told as an object lesson. You call me teacher and Lord, Jesus said, and you are right for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've set you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master or messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. We're supposed to wash each other's feet. By the way, have you ever, you ever met that one deacon or deaconess that's glad to wash everyone else's feet but won't let anybody wash theirs? It's the opposite of this, isn't it? What are they saying? Oh, I wash yours all day long, but I'm better than you. I don't need washing. Fellow sinners, fellow servants, we're blessed if we do these things. Is it ever too late? to work it out. The shoemaker used to work late in the evening. He was told, look how late it is. Your candle is about to go out. The shoemaker agreed, it is late. But as long as the candle is burning, it is still possible to mend. We can all use mending. And we all cherish those that we can see, that we can maybe fix ourselves as we fix each other. Rather than reject we should keep these candles burning. Jesus' final counsel to the church, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich, white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. One who is loved and know they are loved will love. That's it. That's what it means to be living on the inside. This is why I concluded with this today. If we claim to be loved by God and if we claim to love God, then we will love. And it will include the good and the bad. Our ways of discipline, by the way, have never bore any fruit. How many of you have been in the church long enough that you performed church discipline upon people? Did it ever bear any fruit? All the people that I ever disciplined, I never ever saw them again. It's supposed to be redemptive, it's supposed to be loving. Our problem was, I can tell you exactly, our problem was we did not love them as we loved ourselves. And we carried it out even without that love. It was the reprover's fault. I would love to be a member of a church who got together in a church business meeting one day and said, you know what, the only thing we're gonna discipline for is being unloving. Want to get kicked out of our church? Hate your neighbor. That's tricky. Okay, that's tricky because we're not supposed to be trying to coerce somebody into loving, you know. So, so threatening somebody with discipline if they're not loving, nah, that's a little too, you know what I mean? But, but dang, wouldn't that be good instead of some of the reasons that we've kept people out of our church? Anyone who claims to wear these unstained garments will be as he is. Anyone claiming to have applied his eye salve will see clearly to reprove and to accept reproving as we are supposed to. This is what it means to be on the inside. This is listening to Jesus and his inside voice. And if you think that it's hard, I'm here to tell you, yes. 
I, I really believe that that's why the, the path is narrow because so few people are actually going to allow themselves to be loved unconditionally by God and then be willing to unconditionally love everybody else. That's why the path is narrow. It's a whole lot easier to try to base it on something else. Listen, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. The worst church in all of Revelation, the worst church coming down gets the greatest reward. What do they get? They get Jesus. All we have to do is let him in. And just to point this out, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you've locked me out of the door. Maybe we're not talking about him. We're talking about everybody who we've told don't belong. We've locked them out. And Jesus said, if you've locked them out, you've locked me out. If you do this for the least of these, you do it for who? For me. A church really has to, really has to come to terms if we really believe that there isn't anybody out there who doesn't belong in here for whatever reason. Have we thought about those that we're keeping out? And is Jesus saying that as long as we keep them out, we're keeping him out? So, how'd you like our time on the inside? Now we have to keep living on the inside. Thank you for going on this journey with me. Thank you for a little extra time today. I will miss you all. I will. But a week from today, I'll be at our son's wedding. Almost, almost at this almost exact time. Actually, we'll be at a, at a pre-wedding dinner or lunch at, at, at about this time while you guys are worshiping. But uh, pray for Andrew and for Rachel.